Hello and welcome to our brand new season, which will actually see us travel through Christmas of 2020 and the new year of 2021. This season is all about helping you take action. Now, 2020 has been a year and for many it's meant having to put things on hold, including their plans for building and renovating their family homes. So this season is going to help you, whatever stage you're at, take your next best steps and to avoid the mistakes that many make and to have some goals to aim for and clear action steps to achieve them. So let's dive into our first episode. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Now, before I jump into this episode, I want to share with you a fantastic resource I've created to help you, and you can access it now for free. If you're struggling with understanding the overall steps for your project, what you should be focusing on and when, or how to invest your efforts, energy, and money in the best possible way to get a great outcome in your future home, this will be super helpful. I've created a free online workshop called Your Project Plan, and you can watch it now. Head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan to access it and watch it online. I've also added some great bonus resources that I've made available for you, and they include the transcripts of all of the podcasts in this season, this Christmas 2020 season, packaged up in a fantastic e-guide. You can find it all at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan, and that's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N, project plan, or one word. Go check it out now. Now, let's get on with the episode. So as I said in the introduction, this season of the podcast is about helping get your planning and your project back on track or just to get it on track altogether and understand what mistakes to avoid and your action steps based on where you're at along your journey. This season will take us through Christmas and New Year, which I know can be a really busy research time for many homeowners. It's a time thinking about what the new year ahead will hold for us. And it's also a time that our homes get tested as we gather, entertain, spend time with family and friends and see where our homes frustrate us as a result. And according to my Google Analytics, it's always the busiest time of year on uh, Undercover Architects website. Now, this year may be different. Uh, Because in 2020, of course, we've had a big year of spending a lot of time at home and testing our living environments in a way that we never have before. And we've also demanded a lot more of them than we ordinarily would. There's been homeschooling, working from home, exercising at home, whilst also having a place that feels organised, helps us relax and enjoy spending time with each other, as well as give us some sanity breaks away from each other as well. It's, It's probably more than we've ever asked of our homes before. I'm seeing a lot of homeowners really switch up how they want their future homes to look, largely because of what they've learned this year, being in them so much. And I wonder if you're thinking similarly and incorporating new ideas in your planning, your designing and your dreaming because of what you've learned about your home, about yourself and about your lifestyle this past year. As we start planning for 2021, 
that may also feel a bit different because 2020 showed us in the most global, collective and confronting way that you can have all the plans in the world and still have everything turned on its head. But I'm still finding that I'm wanting to make plans and set goals for 2021 and many that I'm speaking to are feeling similarly, wanting to make plans and actually feel like they're moving towards a goal, even though that goal may have changed from what it looked like in the past. And as this episode goes live, the Get It Right podcast has just celebrated its fourth birthday. This, this episode is the 186th episode of the podcast. I can't quite believe it. You know, those four years have flown and over the course of that time, I've been able to share a huge amount of information and also share some incredible people with you here on the podcast. Now, I'm not stopping anytime soon. I'm making plans for 2021 on the podcast and the what and the who that I'll be bringing you over the year ahead. It's, I just... You know, it's super exciting to think of a fresh new year and what's ahead. So make sure you stay tuned, you tell your friends and know that there's a lot more good stuff on its way here on Get It Right. And I'm going to be keeping you company here on the podcast over the Christmas New Year time as we roll out this season. Before we jump into those episodes, though, I'm going to spend this episode talking more generally about Undercover Architect. Like I said, I've been thinking a lot about 2021 and in that I've been thinking about you and this podcast and Undercover Architect generally. I don't know about you, 2020 has been a big year of review for me and uh, yeah, I've I've realised as part of that that even though I've shared in lots of other places the how and why Undercover Architect began, I've never really told that story in detail here on the Get It Right podcast. Now, to be frank with you, in the past, it's always felt a bit self-indulgent to talk about myself and the business on this podcast. What I've noticed, though, especially over the last year, is how much I enjoy hearing founder stories. It's one of the main things I listen to on podcasts and about, you know, how businesses that I interact with were actually created and the why behind them being created as well. And I know I have such a beautiful community with Undercover Architect and especially here on the podcast. And so I thought it would be sharing some detail on why and how Undercover Architect began. So let's do this. I'm actually going to step uh, back in time a bit, back to late uh, 2012. Now, at the time, my kids were aged five, three and 18 months. I had three kids under four. So they're all about 22, 22 months apart from each other. Now, we were living in Brisbane and we were renovating our home and it was a big project. My husband was doing the renovation full time. He'd stopped his work as a physio to to focus on the renovation. And we were turning a 100 square metre home into something that was over 400 square metres. Now, it was an old Art Deco Queenslander, which we raised and built in underneath. And we added an extension on the back for a living kitchen dining area as as a beautiful pavilion extension. And we also put in a new pool. And we'd been living out of the home for about a year uh, in, in a self-contained two-bedroom lower floor that some dear friends of ours allowed us to move into and rent from them. And uh, we then, after you know being out of the home for the year, we moved back into the home whilst it was still under construction. And we proceeded just to camp out in it with drop sheets on the floor and you know things in boxes and you know the, had the aim of finishing the renovation and putting the house on the market. 
So at the time too, so late 2012, I was the co-owner of an architectural practice. Now we'd started that practice in 2009. I was one of six partners and uh, we had studios in Brisbane and Sydney and a team of about 20 in total. And as a practice, we were doing a mix of work, you know, everything we had Um, Aldi supermarkets as a client. Uh, We also were doing some commercial buildings through to large-scale residential developments. I was the director in charge of the financial side of the business. I managed the reporting and the forecasting of our budgets, cash flow and the like. And then I also did a lot of work with individual residential clients on renovations and new builds, which was really good work to be able to juggle around the kids when they were so little people didn't mind that I brought a baby to a meeting. (laughs) So now towards the end of 2012, I had a few personal things happen that they just shook things up a bit and they caused me to unravel a bit. And I remember saying to a dear friend uh, at the time that I felt like I didn't just want to talk to someone about it. I actually wanted some tools and some resources to find my way through it and beyond it. And this friend, fortunately, she was getting uh, her coaching accreditation. She was someone I'd known for a long time. And lucky for me, she actually needed to get up her hours with some sessions. And so we booked some time together and um, started doing some exercises and she took me through some things to do. And so one exercise that we did, uh, which was an early one, and it's one that I think on regularly, even these days, it's such a worthwhile exercise to do. What she did was she, we sat together and she had a pile of post-it notes and uh, she was sitting beside me, pen in hand, pile of post-it notes in her palm. And first she asked me what my personal priorities were. And, you know, I'm a mum, I'm a co-owner of a business, I'm a wife, we're in the middle of a renovation, you know, and anyone with little ones at that age, you'll know you're kind of in the trenches, um, just basically making sure you're awake enough every day to get everything done. And uh, so when she asked me what my personal priorities were, I started listing them off and, you know, it took some thought, but each time I listed one, she wrote it on a post-it note and put it in a pile and keep pushing to, to ask, you know, was that it? Was that it? Was that, is that, did I have anything else? Did I have anything else? Now at the time, they were things like family, um, freedom was one of them, fun was another one, being a great role model to my kids was a really important priority, being a great friend, um, adventure and other things like that. Then once we had all of those in place and on post-it notes and in a neat little pile, we did the same thing with my professional priorities. So I was 39 uh, at the time, I was the youngest director of our practice, so six directors in total. Um, and uh, there was one other female as a director, um, but she was uh, a fair bit older than me with kids a lot older than mine. So I was the, sort of the only female that was really juggling babies and the business, and I was feeling very behind in my career, you know, and so I remember at the time my professional priorities, they looked like things like professional status and industry recognition and uh, financial success and Uh, financial security and business growth and things like that. Now, my friend took each pile and she started to peel the post-it notes apart and then started to ask me to put them in order. So first, you know, working through each list one at a time. So it was really about looking at what was the highest priority to the lowest priority. 
each time I decided on the order, she'd test it. So she'd say, is this one more important than this? You know, and we'd sort of move and shuffle things around. Now we did this with the personal list first, and then we then went through the professional list um, as well. Now, maybe, maybe you can see where this is going. I was still, I was still enjoying being in the exercise and wasn't, wasn't quite sure what she was about to teach me. So but she basically did it with these two lists and uh, laid them out on, I think we were sitting on the floor at this point. So she laid them out on the floor um, in front of me and she put the lists side by side and my jaw just dropped on the floor. I remember, I just remember the shock of it. Now, interestingly, freedom was on the top of my personal list and it's still one of my highest values and one of my highest priorities. And financial security, that was at the top of my professional list. And I, you know, I wasn't surprised. I grew up in a single parent household. Um, Money always felt scarce. Mum worked a lot to keep everything going. So it's no wonder that that ranked so highly. Um, And then the rest of the list, you know, it rolled out. What was shocking was this though, that all of the things that I highly valued in my personal life about family, about being a role model to my kids, about contributing, um, about having fun, you know, all of those kinds of things, they were just all at total odds with my professional priorities, which were, you know, they were largely driven by ego, if I'm really frank with you, and about wanting accolades and notoriety and status and all of those other things associated with ego. And I just remember this huge light bulb moment about the misalignment and just the shock of it and thinking, holy cow, this, you know, I've been chasing this sort of one set of agenda in my my professional life and it's totally at odds with the lessons I want to teach my kids and how I want to show up as a parent and a friend and uh, it was just, it was, yeah, it was mind blowing. And I credit that exercise with kicking off what started to unfold over the next 12 months because something had to change. Now, a few weeks later, my friend showed me a leadership and immersion program that's run by Business Chicks with uh, the not-for-profit The Hunger Project. And it was heading to Uganda in November of 2013. Now, whilst it was probably the worst timing, you know, I had little ones, we were doing this big renovation, I co-owned an architectural practice um, with the, you know, I remember having dinner with my husband and saying, I really, really would love to go. And him saying, well, if you really want to do it, then do it. And I signed up and my friend did as well. And we decided to fundraise together. So you had to commit to fundraising $10,000 each. Over the next seven months, we fundraised $25,000. And then we traveled to Uganda with a group of 20 or so other women who had also fundraised money as well. And we all had to cover our own expense, travel expenses as well. Now, you may have heard me talk about this experience of traveling to Uganda with Business Chicks and The Hunger Project before. It was a really pivotal, pivotal experience. And it was, I kind of credit it as the birthplace of Undercover Architect. Now, it wasn't just the trip itself. The fundraising was a huge effort and we were incredibly fortunate to have the support of some, in, some amazing friends, you know, strangers, really beautiful people who just believed in what we were doing. Um, but asking people for money is hard and you find out a lot about people in the process. I found out a lot about my business partners that I didn't really know. I found out, you know, a lot about the people that I'd surrounded myself with wasn't all good either. So if you're not familiar with Business Chicks, I'll just give you a little bit of information. It's the largest uh, women's business networking and membership organization. Um, Incredible organization, really should check it out. 
Uh, it's just, it's an incredible, incredible, incredible group. And the Hunger Project is a not-for-profit that believes that the key to ending hunger and poverty lies in uh, with those most impacted by it uh, through educating and empowering them to learn how to find their own ways out of that situation. Now, it's a hugely sustainable model. It works on really low investment, having a massive impact where it really matters. And they especially focus on working with women because they see that when you empower women, you create generational change. You know, women are much more likely to invest in their families, in educating their children, uh, in building communities and collectives to support each other and actually change the course of their history. We spent two and a half weeks in Uganda traveling to villages, meeting those who had worked with the Hunger Project and also meeting those who hadn't really so that we could see the difference that it made. And it was, you know, all that you'd expect a trip like that to be. We spent a lot of time together as a group, sometimes sitting on a bus for eight hours, traveling along dirt roads in Africa. We'd have a debriefing and a mentoring session at the end of every day in order to be able to process things. I often say that it picked up my life like a plastic bag and shook all the contents out on the ground and then said to me, okay, what do you want to pick back up now, Amelia? And I remember having a particular experience that really stood out to me. On one day, we'd travelled into a village to sit uh, in on a community meeting with women who'd all taken out microfinance loans to create businesses and support their families. Microfinance is a a big advocate and and proponent of change and uh, the Hunger Project was the first organisation to provide microfinance to people who had HIV and and so that's we were seeing basically meeting a woman who was living with HIV and was heading up the microfinance uh, community in her area. Now, as part of their commitment to the microfinance, um, those who have borrowed money, they also commit to attending these weekly community meetings. And if someone defaults on their loan, the rest of the group are actually responsible for covering her payment. What accountability, hey? And, you know, sitting in the, on this meeting and we listened to them discuss specific challenges that they were having and talking through what they were going to do to resolve things. And then we had a walk around where we were. Now, as you can imagine, big group of white women in an African village, it's quite a spectacle. So we drew a lot of attention and interest. And I remember seeing a woman that was tending to some crops and then she was following us around and she had a couple of small children in tow. We had translators traveling with us so that we could speak to people. And one came with me as I went to speak to this woman. And when I asked her what her name was, she told me her name was Kevin. And then I asked her the ages of her children. And she said the one that was standing beside her Uh, was four and the one that was in a sling on her back was 18 months and I remember just being floored um, because the four-year-old was smaller than my two-year-old at home and the 18-month-old was about the same size that my kids were at nine months. Now Kevin was 38 years old and these were the two youngest of eight children that she had and she, one of them had unfortunately um, passed away and she was supporting her whole family plus five extended family members. Now it's hard to describe but in that moment something just sort of stopped and I can still vividly remember the feeling. I was, I can remember standing in that place even though it's seven years ago, you know, it's almost like things were in slow motion. So she went on to tell me and she was speaking with such pride and confidence about what she had and had achieved and what she was achieving and how much the Hunger Project had really changed her life and helped her be able to make all these changes. And I remember I was listening to her and I was just in a state of shock. You know, she was 
38 and a mum and I was 40 at the time and a mum and in that moment I remember I remember the feeling I I just realized that had the universe played out differently I could have so easily been standing in her shoes and she could have been standing in mine and here was this woman with fire in her eyes and pride holding her chin working against the most enormous adversity, you know, generations of hunger, hopelessness, overcoming massive obstacles with determination and defiance to completely change her family's future and create change for generations. And here was I, with all of my privilege, all the opportunities I've had, the education and the good fortune, putting every excuse in front of me to not change my future and that of my family. And over the next couple of days, as it all came home to roost, and it wasn't in the most comfortable of ways, but you know, that's where all the growth comes, isn't it? I actually came to a couple of really important realizations. Now, the first was my attitude to leadership. I realized that I expected perfection in leadership, perfection from those who led me and perfection in my own leadership of others. Ridiculously high standards um, that really didn't take much to be disappointed, which would then, of course, caused me to be super judgmental of myself and of others. Now, the way the Hunger Project works is it galvanizes local community who are seeking change in their circumstances, but it's led from within the community. So leaders nominate and then they look to create community engagement and they slowly build a movement of leaders that are willing to volunteer to go into their community and network and drive engagement that then connect the community to the education that's available via the Hunger Project. And that's how they sort of mobilise this engagement, mobilise a community as a collective to create change. Now, you'd ask someone how they started working with The Hunger Project and their answer would start with, I changed my mindset. I heard this so many times and it was amazing because this was actually the first step in them being able to see their story could be different from the generations that had gone before them. They had to change their mindset first. Now, this model of leadership actually showed me how much accountability mattered. You know, this wasn't about perfection at all, but it was about accountability as leaders to those that they were leading and also calling those that they were leading to account as well. It was really eye-opening. I also saw a really strong maternal style of leadership that was just, it was incredibly powerful. Now, as I'd grown in my career, I'd always found that I had a maternal style of leadership, even when I was in my 20s. And I was often really heavily criticized for it, you know, and I just put this down to being in a male dominated industry. But I found as a result, I was often hiding this style of leadership that came naturally, you know, instead, I was modeling the leadership styles of my male bosses and mentors. And that always felt hard because it was just what they did was just didn't come naturally to me. Now, my trip to Uganda enabled me to see how powerful this type of maternal leadership can be and not only in the villages but also in the group that I was traveling with as well. That trip to Uganda it initiated a lot of change in mine and my family's lives. Now I came home and I told my husband that I really wanted to stop delaying the dream that we'd held for nine years or more to move to the Byron hinterland. It was why we'd been renovating projects, it was why we'd structured our life the way that we had. It was you know this was a dream that we'd held for a really long time. I told my business partners that I wanted to leave our business and I started thinking about what I would do next and I had all sorts of ideas. None of them were architecture related. It just didn't feel impactful enough and 
I was pretty manic about trying to work this out. You know, I attended all these business seminars. I dived into online resources about online businesses and startups. The thing is, you know, you become an architect and you learn about how to be an architect. You never learn really about how to run a business. So I was just learning everything I could about what it looked like to run a business that wasn't potentially an architectural practice. And, you know, whilst we were also looking for a house to buy in the Byron Hinterland. We'd already sold uh, the big project that we'd renovated and we were renting at the time. And then I was negotiating my exit with my business partners as well. And gratefully, they'd very kindly agreed to a six-month time frame so that my exit could be planned for. And I had some time personally to figure out the next steps. I, I was also really struggling with life post coming home from Uganda. I was, I know I was really hard to live with. I was hard to be friends with. I just couldn't unsee what I'd seen. It was, you know, hunger and poverty at a scale that I kind of knew existed, but I'd never really seen at that sort of level, let alone in person. You know, if you're my age, you probably remember all the World Vision famine ads that we used to grow up with. You know, this was really different to that. It wasn't that type of hunger. This was generations of hunger and poverty. It's much, much more subtle and really insidious, but still really confronting to see. Um, and I'd arrived home in November 2013, so it was pre-Christmas. So I'd left, you know, with no no mention of Christmas in the stores or anything like that, come home and the stores were full of decorations. There were ads everywhere about all the stuff that we could buy. My kids are figuring out their Santa lists. You know, I want, I want, I want, you know how it goes. I almost cancelled the entire thing. <laughs> I think it took... About 72 hours of being home for me to yell at my kids, you know, there are kids dying in Africa and you're getting upset about this, whatever, whatever this was. And I remember my husband in the background just saying, we're here. Wow. You know, I was waiting to see how quickly we'd get here <laughs> with a wry smile on his face, looking at his watch, you know, 72 hours, Amelia. <laughs> he was very, very patient with me. Now, I was, um, of course, I was trying to figure out what I'd be doing after leaving DC8 Studio, which was the architectural practice I co-owned. And I kept speaking to people about the ideas that I had. And the strongest idea, the one that I felt most, you know, pulled towards was having, was creating an online store where everything that you bought had a philanthropic benefit. There was a similar business doing really well in the States. And so I was exploring what that would look like. Now, people who are much more business savvy than me, they wisely questioned how I was going to monetize that. And I'm the main breadwinner in our family, so <laughs> I needed to be monetizing something. Now, having been educated, I went to an all-girls school for 10 years. I was raised by a single mom and then worked in such a male-dominated industry. I found that I've always gravitated to, you know, sort of female networks. And I, as an architect working inside uh, private practice and in development businesses, I was a member and a chair of the UDIA, which is the Urban Development Institute of Australia's Women in Development Committee for several years. And I also became a member of Business Chicks as well. And I connected into the Commonwealth Bank Women in Focus community. And it was actually through Women in Focus that I was connected to someone who was running an online store that was also, it was helping with microfinancing women in third world countries. And somebody suggested I should speak to this woman. And so fortunately she was um, willing to jump on the phone with me and I told her about my plans and my background and the challenges that I was experiencing and you know just what it was going to take to bring things into fruition and you know what you know really what her thoughts were on all of that. Now she said something to me that I'll never forget because what she actually said was it's really what 
it's 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 what jolted Undercover Architect into being and put me back on the track that I needed to be on. And what she said was this, your skills in architecture aren't easily replicable. You should look at something to do with that. <laughs> such a simple observation, isn't it? But yeah, it was it was something that I needed to hear at the time and really, really fortunate that somebody uh, said it to me. Now, in Uganda, of course, I'd seen how powerful education could actually be in empowering people to rewrite their stories you know, stories that have been around for generations, you know, education as a means to empower, especially for women. And so I started to look at how this idea of empowerment through education could apply to my own industry of designing, building and renovating family homes, an industry that I've got so much experience in and really just wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with next. And this idea of empowerment through education sort of seemed to be at the heart of it. Now, I'd also seen how differently we do things as women, especially inside such a male-dominated industry and experience, and how great this different way is for getting fantastic outcomes. You know, I remember, you know, when I was an architect working inside Mervac, I was sitting in a big meeting and it was very common to be uh, either one or one of a few women in the room. And... Um, this was a big design meeting for a project that I was working on at the time at Mervac. And so the heads of each of, divi- of each division were in this meeting room. And for some reason, a heated argument had begun. There was a lot of yelling, a lot of accusations flying around about something. Um, I think construction had an issue with what we as architects had done. Um, and were wanting to discuss it. it was a lot of argy-bargy. The thing was, though, the yelling the yelling wasn't that unusual and neither was the swearing. There was always lots of swearing, pretty pretty rough swearing actually and I remember the head of construction who was a fair few years older than me I remember him turning to me and continuing to yell sort of he was in midstream and he I was sitting beside him and he turned around and he just shouted some accusation at me whilst he was waving his hands around and I just paused for a moment and really quietly just like dropped my voice right down I hadn't been I'd just been sitting there watching all of this unfold Um, But when he sort of turned to me and addressed me with this, I just responded really quietly, please don't yell at me. And I remember he went, I'm not yelling, as his voice then dropped in volume quite quickly. (laughs) It was such a good circuit breaker. Now, this wasn't something that came naturally to me. You know, I, like I said, I was often the one in the meeting just sitting back and listening. My boss loved it actually, because whilst he'd be doing all the presenting and leading the meeting, I'd be doing the listening and the watching. And so um, then, you know, after the meeting, he and I would, you know, I'd, I'd take him through my recap so that I could let him know all the stuff that he hadn't seen or heard because he'd been the one speaking up the front, you know, driving the conversation. So, you know, as a young architect, I just thought that the fact that I was somebody who always listened meant that I'd just always take a back seat in the industry because, you know, I wasn't forthright or loud or bombastic enough, which is what all the male leaders around me looked like. And, what I found was that my trip to Uganda actually showed how powerful it was to be this way and that it takes all kinds of leaders to create change and that what I was best served working out was what I was good at, what my strengths were, what I enjoyed doing and working on and growing and celebrating that. Now, the thing with industry of designing, building and renovating homes, uh, particularly family homes, is that you know, you're often having to have difficult conversations. And for some reason, you know, whilst I sat in big corporate meetings feeling young and out of my depth and just wanting to sit back and listen, I was always totally okay with standing on site and asking loads of questions and trying to drive what I want. And I'm really fortunate. I think that 
you know, that came from very early in my career. I worked on the Sydney Olympics. Um, that was sort of from the age of being about 22. And the firm I worked for at the time in Sydney, um, who I was with for a fair few years, uh, they were lead consultants over the public domain at the Sydney Olympic site. So we worked on all the in-between spaces. So all the street lighting, signage, uh, paving and street furniture and those big lighting towers that you see down the main boulevard with all of the solar panels, they were, um, you know, that was one of the things that we, we designed and worked on. So, you know, when you work on a project like that, that has a deadline that can't move, <laughs> it's a bit of a baptism by fire. And if you want to get stuff done, you get used to having difficult conversations. And I was really fortunate at the time to be mentored by some brilliant people along the way as well, who just, they took teaching me, they took it really seriously. Now, as I said earlier, I grew up with a single mum. She's a serial renovator. She still is, even in her seventies, she loves a good property makeover. She's done this to her own homes and to friends' places as well. She often has friends who kind of get her to come stay and oversee a bunch of stuff and she's only five foot tall and, and half an inch. The half an inch is very important, but she is super feisty and she's dealt with tradespeople questioning her, uh, trying to bamboozle her, especially in the early days um, when we were when we were younger. And she's even had tradespeople that refused to work with for her because she didn't have a husband who was going to pay the bills. Um, I remember watching altercations that she'd had with these tradies and then she'd show them the door. Now, I've also experienced this myself in our own renovations, this kind of treatment that you can get from tradies sometimes. You know, my husband and I, we'd, uh, we've done three renovations across 12 years. I had had so many experiences where tradespeople or suppliers or subbies, they just saw me as a mum. They'd have no idea that I'm an architect and they told me, you know, I'll just wait to speak to your husband or is your husband home um, or does your husband want to be involved in this? And, and I'd heard from countless female friends and from work colleagues that this has been happening to them as well. And, you know, I'd spend so much time with clients as I'd help them design, build and renovate their family homes. And then I'd see how challenging it was for them to navigate this industry for the first time. And it was doubly hard for women because they were dealing with these same attitudes that I'd seen, but they didn't have the luxury of being able to say, hey, mate, I'm an architect. You need to pull your head in. And, you know, of course, there'd be all the conversations I'd have with people who would hear that I was an architect. And then they'd tell me about the disaster stories they'd had or the, you know, that friends or family had had and they'd spent all of this time, money and effort to create a home that they then regretted parts or all of it, you know, where they'd made bad decisions or they'd been talking, in, they'd been talked into something, you know, somebody had pushed them to make a decision that they didn't like or they just simply made a big mistake or made loads of them and now their home frustrated them or it was needing elements to be replaced um, or upgraded or, you know, they'd had a battle with a designer or a builder or someone else and that had just meant loads of extra stress and expense. And so all of this was sort of my experience of this industry at the time that this lovely woman said to me, your skills in architecture aren't easily re replicable. You should look at doing something with that and then seeing empowerment through education and knowing that so many had a horrible experience of designing, building and renovating. And that may be their only experience of doing it because, you know, you don't do this often in your life. And then you're living in something that lasts for decades and it impacts your life and the lives of your family. And I just wanted to level the playing field. You know, it seems so unfair that some had a great experience because they got the help that they needed when they needed it and then others didn't. And I knew and I know that good design isn't any more expensive. It's just about having reliable, trustworthy and helpful information early enough for you to be able to act on it. And it's, you know, it's not like we have a shortage of information. 
It's just that we have a shortage of meaningful, helpful and valuable information that you can trust and that really matters. And I remember a client saying to me once, you know, the wall costs the same whether you build it in the wrong place or the right place. And I really just wanted to help more people build the wall in the right place. So Undercover Architect began in mid-2014 as an education platform. It was a blog, to be more specific, where each week I published uh, a blog that I hoped helped the handful of people that were reading it, mostly my friends. And surely, but slowly, though, the word spread and I wrote some blogs on other websites as well. And then more and more people started finding Undercover Architect. Now, in the first few years, all of that blogging happened alongside my design work. So I was doing design concepts for new builds and renovations, or I was fixing the floor plan that they'd had done by someone else. And especially in the early days, I was also doing more, um, you know, conventional architectural architectural work as well. So, and I was really just looking for things that I could work on locally or remotely, and I could do from home because we'd moved to the Byron Hinterland by this stage. Now, early in Undercover Architect, whilst I was at a conference, there was another attendee who she started talking to me about her renovation plans and she was asking me about the next steps. And I remember her saying to me, I just wish there was a step-by-step guide on the steps I need to take. And that afternoon, whilst I was at the conference, I wrote out 30 steps. And this was like another light bulb moment, you know, at the end of 2015, I launched that as an online program. And The first time I ran it, people just received an email each day across 30 days with that day's step and they had a PDF to read or a video to watch or something to listen to. And these were the steps that I had followed in my own projects for years. I just distilled them down into those 30 steps. Now, people bought it, even people I didn't know. And, um, you know, as someone who had literally spent their entire career drawing drawings and designing, working as an architect, it actually blew my mind that people were interested in me teaching them as well. Now, that was the beginning of my first online program. And that system is what is actually, you know, it's it's dramatically grown and it's blossomed over the past uh, five years into the home method. And it's it's helped and it's continuing to help hundreds of homeowners with their projects and their homes. Slowly over time, though, as I was juggling both uh, the design services and running online courses, I realized that I needed to make a choice. Now, By this stage, I'd pulled my design services out under a separate business that I called Design by Amelia Lee, and then Undercover Architect was solely focused at being the education platform. So the choice I had to make was this. I could keep designing homes and hire some architectural staff to help me deal with the volume of homes that I was um, being asked to do and actually become a pseudo-architectural practice. And then I would be doing the, the education on the side as a means of marketing my architectural services. So have a main hustle of the design work and then a side hustle of education, which is it's so like many others in the online space who are teaching people about building and renovating. There's people who are, you know, they're flipping houses and uh, have their own development business and um, all of those kinds of things, but they're, they're teaching renovation or building courses on the side. Um or the choice was this, I could actually get off the drawing board literally. And that would mean that I could help more people through the online courses, through education, while still being a small team and ultimately scaling me more efficiently and more effectively. Now, my mission has always been, and it continues to be, to change the way that we build and renovate our family homes. So this really, you know, this was the time to put my all into it, into this mission. And of course, as part of that was going to be the need to handle some the criticism of some of my industry who tell me that I'm not a real architect. 
but this mission was far bigger than that. And also it was part of creating Live Life Build with Dwayne Pierce, which I spoke about a couple of episodes ago as well, which is another business that I started last year, 2019. So now there is no side hustle. Undercover Architect is it. It's all about empowerment through education. Of course, there's free and paid ways of doing that. And then the blog, the podcast, the home method and my other online programs and mini courses. The fact that Undercover Architect is solely an education business, it still surprises people who don't realise because they assume that I run an architectural practice and I just do this education stuff on the side. But that's not the case. I'm all in on Undercover Architect. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm super grateful for because it supports my family. It enables me to work from home whilst I'm helping many thousands of homeowners all over, many of whom I'll never meet and have used Undercover Architect to change the way that they design, build and renovate their home. So I want you to know I am all in. I'm all in on changing this industry so that everyone can enjoy their project and create a home they love living in. I mean seriously changing this industry. I am all in on helping you get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. And I'm definitely all in on being your secret ally. Now, if you're still listening to this episode, I want to say a huge thank you. Thank you for being here because this wouldn't exist without you. We, we're going to change things together. As you get intentional, as you get prepared, as you get educated to create your future home, you empower yourself to have a more enjoyable project experience and you demand better from those that you're working with. So you raise the standard of performance in the industry by doing that. And together, this is how we'll change things. This is how we'll make the industry, our homes and our lives better. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to be back talking about getting serious in your project whilst having fun too. And then after that, we're going to be jumping into our stage by stage episodes to share the mistakes that you want to avoid and the action steps to take to get your project and yourself back on track. Remember to check out my online workshop, Your Project Plan. It's yours to access for free and you can watch it now. Plus, there's some great bonus resources for you, as well as the transcripts to this season of the podcast, all packaged up in a great downloadable e-guide. This free workshop, it will really help you understand the best steps to take wherever you're at in your project and how you can avoid some serious and expensive mistakes. Plus, I'll share with you what to focus on and when so that you know that you're getting everything in order for a successful project and a beautiful home. Head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. It's all one word, P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N, project plan, to watch it now. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time. <music>